0: This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Let FreshBooks take care of the numbers stuff so you can get paid doing what you love, as well as MailChimp, the easiest way to send email newsletters, connect with your audience, and grow your creative business. This is the Great Discontent Podcast. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of TGD Live, a monthly interview event series. Your lovely and well-dressed hosts for the night were Tina Maker and Brad Smith. Enjoy the show.
1: So I'm going to get in trouble for something that I'm about to say, but uh, today's Tina's birthday.
2: Thank you. It's true. He's not making it up. It's really my birthday. So if
1: you would like to leave gifts, monetary uh, notes, or anything on your way out, you can leave it to Tina's attention or mine, and I will see they get to the proper point. Um, So this... (laughs) It's true. You can leave some, too. We'll split it. Um, So you're spending your birthday here. Um, So that assumes you and Ryan aren't out doing a nice big dinner or anything like that. So any birthdays of recent memory that... uh, That have been exciting or fun? Um,
2: Well, this is the biggest birthday party I've ever had. So um, (laughs) I think this is going to be a good one. It's going to be a really fun night.
1: Perfect. Ooh, we might have to sing happy birthday at the very end.
2: Let's save it. We'll
1: see. We'll see. We'll see how it goes.
2: (laughs) Okay. So tonight we're talking about the web and publishing and all of that fun stuff. And I'm interested to hear, what was your first experience with the internet? Do you remember?
1: Um the first weird, awkward experience in a CompuServe chat room or, like, actual experience with the Internet. That that one should be laughed at because that's that's another story for another place that's not here. Um, the first would probably be uh I did not have access to the Internet until after high school and built my first website on Tripod and launched a blog on that in probably 1997.
2: Okay, that was yeah. before I graduated. I'm 21, graduated. in case
1: anyone's wondering. I just... Just got started at a very young age, almost 22. But
2: Well, that was 97. Okay, so I graduated high school in 99, uh, 1999, which is a print song, and also um, the year that one of our guests started blogging. So uh, without further ado, let's bring up our first guest. I say we do. Um, our first guest is a New York-based entrepreneur, activist, and advocate working to make technology and the tech industry more humane, inclusive, and ethical. A co-founder of MakerBase, ThinkUp, and Activate. He serves as a board member for Stack Overflow, New York Tech Meetup, the Lower East Side Girls Club, and he advises startups and nonprofits, including Medium and Donors Choose. He's been blogging since 1999, has been a contributing writer to Wired, has had his works exhibited in the New Museum of Contemporary Art, and his Twitter account has been retweeted by the White House, Bill Gates, and Prince. Please welcome Anil Dash.
1: I retweeted him a few times. Thank you. That was a
3: lot of Just intro. I, I don't know
2: if I can live well, up to all that. Um, yeah, you've done a lot. So uh, um, I actually I'm surprised that this is the first time. Like you've been, we have a list of people we want to interview, and and you've been on it for a while. So I'm glad that we're finally making this happen. Um, when I was doing research for the show, um, I came across uh, a question on Cora. And I'm gonna read this question that I found. It said, Pardon my ignorance, but I really would like to know why Anil Dash is well regarded in Silicon Valley tech circles.
4: What the hell
3: is that what has that guy ever done? Yeah.
2: What has he done? <laughs> what has he done or contributed in this space that makes his advice and mentoring sought after? And actually the top answer to that question was by you. Yeah, that's you posted <laughs> and you said <laughs> and you that's said That's pretty um, on brand. Yeah, you said, um, I'm not sure if the, if I'm the best or worst qualified person to answer this, but I've been paged to this thread so I can offer some background. So let's start there tonight. For those who might not be familiar, tell us a little yeah. bit about your current roles and the focus of your work.
4: Sure. I, I have a, a wide-ranging and incoherent <laughs> career in tech uh, over the last 20 years, and um, I've done a lot of different things. Uh, I, I worked in the music business for a little while. I worked in publishing uh, newspaper for sort of a little while. Um, and like music business and newspapers, so I really know how to pick like forward-looking industries that are doing really great. We have
1: a print magazine.
4: Yeah, well, it, it's kind of come back, right? In the way that like vinyl we, we, comes yeah, back, yeah. right? Um, and uh, at the time that I was there, it wasn't so much on the upswing, and uh, and then I uh, happened to get early into what now we call like social media or social networking, and helped build some of the first blogging tools and and that kind of stuff. And so got to sort of get a front row seat to the people that were inventing, like, you know, back in the day, like Blogger and Flickr and later would go and build like Twitter and, and LinkedIn and all that stuff. And just thought, you know, at that first glimpse of it, oh man, this is sort of gonna take over the world. And I thought like, I don't really, like I'm not a great coder and I'm not a great designer, and not, but I, I'm pretty good at telling stories. And, um, oddly, a lot of the people, well, actually it might not be that surprising anymore. A lot of the people building the social networking stuff were not that great at communicating with humans. Uh, and so that was a lot of what, um, I thought I could do is help them sort of tell the story and talk about what, you know, someday there will be all these people on the internet sharing photos and that, you know, 15 years ago, that was enough to get a gig.
1: I could I could ask 15 questions just about what you've already said, but this will turn into a six hour um thing tonight nobody wants that i i do i do i'll I'll text you later we'll talk about it on social sounds fair yeah we will um so i'm gonna pull a jj abrams and we're gonna we're gonna backtrack now we're gonna go back um you're from pennsylvania yeah i grew up
4: in rural pennsylvania in like the dark red heart not neither pittsburgh nor (laughs) philly uh
1: what was it like growing up there um
4: geographically it was very nice um I, we were talking earlier. I was saying my, I have an older sister, and she was the first, I believe, the first person of color in the history of our school district. Um, and so wow. that's a that's a not insignificant thing to deal with. And so it was um, years later, I, after I'd already moved to New York, I had a chance to go back and visit my parents in, in Pennsylvania, or we like out to dinner. And I looked around, and I was like, you know, growing up, I felt like. I didn't fit in here. And then come to think about it, like we spoke a different language at home. We had a different religion. I wore different clothes. I listened to different music. We ate different food. Probably that's why I felt like I didn't fit in around here. Like we, in every way that was meaningful, I was different. Uh, and so like then once I sort of had that perspective, I was like, well, all things considered, it actually worked out okay. Like, I had some friends, like more than zero friends. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> I still feel that way now. Mm-hmm um oh so uh <laughs> I, I, yeah we'll get through it all we'll right get through it uh so speaking of your childhood uh Whoa. in pennsylvania uh-huh. yeah what if we just got really really <laughs> uh, let's deep let's talk here. about my parents Is yeah that we, we're gonna dive in we're gonna talk about dad first actually we're not we're going to ask uh creativity yeah uh was it a part of your childhood
4: um yeah you know I, I, it's interesting like uh, i sort of my parents are wonderful and very loving, but I had Asian parents, and so it was like, you know, what are your test scores? It was a very sort of structured um, and a set of expectations, and I was to be either a doctor or a lawyer, um, both of which I failed at. Um, but I was, uh, I remember being in, like, ninth grade and entering a poetry contest that I did well enough to, like, win a, like a, a banquet dinner that was going to happen in New York. And we ended up not going, which is the idea that I was going to go to, like, tavern on the green and get a like a you know participation certificate <laughs> for my poem was like the greatest thing in the world I was like wow that's what a writer would do yeah. you know um and so and they were uh, you know I think my parents were in their way supportive of that sort of like as long as it doesn't get in the way of you being a doctor that's fine you know like that's <laughs> like it's like whatever that doesn't like that's not hard drugs that's okay <laughs> um and I was very uh but I was just like it, it like, was like a thunderbolt, like, mm-hmm. there was, and there were a couple of moments like that, that were just this, like, oh, I could write, um, and then, you know, I was already into computers, and I sort of got into that, and ended up doing that for years, and became a programmer uh, for a living, and so, I was just like, oh, well, that was some sort of youthful digression,
1: yeah, well, that, that kind of ties into the next question that uh, I will ask in this 14-part question. <laughs> um, a question we like to ask at the, uh, in the Great Discontent interviews is, is about aha moments. Um, was there a point of one of those for you where you thought, this is what I want to do? Maybe not specifically and exactly, but you had that moment of, this sure. is the path that I want to go. There on. were a couple of them. I mean,
4: I, I started blogging in 1999, and I had people who are like still friends of mine, like people who were at my wedding um, linked to my blog. And that was like, you know, it's like getting a retweet from like somebody you like, you know, it's just very like, oh my gosh, that's somebody cool. And um, and it was the first sense of like, oh, everybody's going to do this. I mean, what we like called blogs then now are sort of like everything that we do on, you know, Instagram and Snapchat and whatever. It's like sort of a subset of what we thought, you know, social networking or social media would be. And so it it was just like, within the first six months, really clear that everybody was going to do this. And it was kind of an uncanny thing, because there were, like, 100 blogs. Like, there were, like, I mean, I met everybody that was doing it then, (laughs) you know? (laughs) You know, and that really weird sense of, like, being around, like, I always think of, like, you know, if there's a music scene, you know, the whatever, like, the hip-hop scene at some point was 100 people in the South Bronx, and... You know, I don't know if they ever got that sense of, like, everybody in the world is going to be listening to this. Um, and that was a really sort of uncanny, like, um, lightning bolt moment. And I remember going to one of the other uh, people, this woman I ended up working for, and I was like, you know, someday there's going to be, like, a million people on social media. And she's like, you dumbass. There's going to be a 100 million people. Like, <laughs> like, like, that's, it was like the Dr. Evil, like, $1 million, you know. And they were just like, that's not thinking big enough.
2: So we were talking upstairs. Uh, You said that you'd went to college for about six weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, So instead of saying you dropped out or didn't finish, you should, you know, you never really started. Yeah,
4: I was not. (laughs) Failure to thrive at an early... uh, Um,
2: So you started blogging in 99, but how did you initially get involved in the tech industry in terms of like co-founding companies? companies
4: companies, uh, Well, like accidentally, like all other things. I mean, I was, um, as you might expect, I was a nerd uh, and we, I had a computer as a kid. I mean, I, I think we had back in the eighties, we had like Commodore computers. I got a Commodore computer when I was like five and started programming right away. And, um, and by the time I was in high school, I would do like, you know, freelance gigs for people. And so right out of high school, I started, um, my first company the day after I graduated high school, um, and just like hustled for whatever. I mean, literally like making programs to like grade people's you know there was a professor who had a bunch of classes and had to grade all the scores and I was like I'll make something to do all that and didn't pay very much but it was like way better than you know flipping burgers that was really my thing is like I could do this or that um and so started right away and deferred college um and I'm like I'm the worst immigrant son like I was the first in my family not to go to college <laughs> like my grandmother in India in the 50s went to college like she was born a british subject and she's like i'm gonna get an education and i was like i don't know uh and uh and and then i like i kicked the can down the road and then finally a year later i went because my parents were like you are the greatest abomination of an indian child that's ever lived and no they were they said it nicer but it was like that basically and then i went um and i was like this is horrible because we had and they had these like you know freshman orientation games and i had been like I'm I'm in the big city with my suit on and I'm selling software. I'm high tech businessman. And then you go to like freshman orientation and they're playing the name game like Bob Bob Fofob, which doesn't work with like a at all. You can't you can't play the name game with my name. And I was like, this is hell. This is nightmarish. And I don't I don't like this at all. Uh, and so I just sort of stopped going, which is not the move. That's not actually what you do at college. is stop going. Um, and I was like, well, I get like I'm screwed now. Like, cause they don't. Yeah, they don't really want you around if you don't show up. So I was like, I guess I better work. And after that, it was just hustling. It was literally like, whoever, like, I'm like, whatever you want me to do with the computer, like, you want me to plug in your printer, I'll do that.
1: And, and you were programming at this point. That's, that's, yeah, I was trying
4: to, but like, mostly, I mean, this is, I'm, um, what are we talking about, 1994. So like, this is the dark ages. So like, literally at that point, somebody would be like, I heard about the internet can you can you put internet in our office? And I'd be like, sure, you know? And like, you go and you get them on AOL and they, they'd pay you to do that or they pay you to hook up a printer. Like, I didn't care. And then, you know, not long after that, I moved to the city and it was sort of the same thing. I was like, whatever you got, I'll do. Um, and then, um, and I had real jobs after a while. Like, I, eventually I was working at the Village Voice and doing web development um, and their sort of early versions of their their website. And I had gone, I mean, this is probably... I'm sure I got to a question about this, but I, you know, I had found out about the Village Voice because um, Prince had had a song uh, on his 1999 album that was called All the Critics Love You in New York, and it was about you know basically him how he got great reviews from, from um, uh, folks like Robert Christgau at, at the Village Voice, and I just was like, this is amazing, and that, that's the place I want to go, and I'll kind of do whatever job you got to do. And I got there and realized, like, this organization does not care at all about what the website does. Like, that's why they hired me. Like, the clear indication that they just don't care what they do. Like, they'll let this kid do this stuff. And, uh, and so it sort of got free reign to do it, and I had started blogging. And then I saw all the tools of what would become social networking, social media. And, and friends were building all this stuff. And it was, like, just people that you knew, like, you know, how you vaguely know people online would build stuff and you would see, oh, that's gonna be, that's gonna take over the world. And, and good friends of mine, had, well, like good online friends, I mean, I'd met them in person like once, but we'd, we'd email or whatever a lot, had built um, the tools that eventually would publish like Huffington Post and Gawker and all that stuff. And I was like, you got a company? And they're like, no, we just made some tools. I was like, you got a company. <laughs> uh, and like long story short, I ended up moving out to San Francisco for a couple of years and helped them build a company.
2: So what you're saying is really, you didn't have a master plan no. You just said yes to opportunities that presented themselves along the way. I, I
4: mostly said no to opportunities. Like I, I like I got it wrong a lot. Like I mean, I knew for like the people I know, like some of them were like became billionaires and I was like that'll never work, you know? And so so like for them and I'm not a billionaire. Um so it was like mostly I got it really really wrong, but I just like I didn't get it. I got it like 99% wrong and there was just so much wealth generated that like you could be like, you can make a living because, like, I'm not a millionaire either, but I'm like, I can afford to live in the city. That's, and that's where the bar was. So it was sort of nice
1: um, that you could be mostly wrong and still get by. Um, and it was interesting through this time, especially like the, the late 90s, very, very early, early 2000s. So I, I started my first company in 2000, 2001, and, and we fought and we struggled for several years to get our work out there and become yeah. known. And then we launched a blog. And we became well known. We're getting more business, and it wasn't the not that the work wasn't good, but it was because of the blog. Yeah, yeah. Um, but for you, that's even longer. You've been doing this since 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the big drive at that point to to want to start blogging? The voices in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, no,
4: you, you really. I mean, I think there's a certain inclination of everybody has their medium, and some people are sort of great photographers, and and you know, everybody finds what they're great at, and. I'd always had um, the things I wanted to say, and probably was inflicting them on email to pe- you know, friends and family who are just like, oh, God, here it he goes again, you know, and if I just put them up on the internet, like, it still scratched the itch of, like, I had this thing I wanted to create, and I wanted to say, and I, I was always writing, and I realized this later, is that I, like, would be on the subway, and just always writing, and it was always, like, 600, 800 words, like, that was sort of, like, my natural form, and it wasn't. You know, and it ended up like even when I was writing for Wired, my columns there were sort of like just found that natural length, and there was just no other place to put them. Like nobody wanted to publish it, and so since I knew how to do it, I might as well put it on the internet. And enough people sort of connected with that. I mean, you know, in the early days, it was also, and this is true, I think, still think of so many um, social networks that if you're early and you're sort of decently good at it, you get this disproportionate reach. So like, like DJ Khaled. Not, I don't know. I'm like, I don't even, like, I don't, like, dude is, like, a little paunchier than me, same age as me. He's not appreciably cooler than me. And as far as I know, he doesn't do anything on his records. Like, he doesn't write them. Like, he's, he sort of shows up in the videos. But he doesn't really, like, he doesn't, he's just kind of around, right? So he's like, he's like a, a party convener. Um, who, who gets a record contract. And yet, like, he's the king of Snapchat. And I'm like, you were just early, man. Like, that's all you had. Like, it wasn't like people were like, I really want to see this dude with his shirt off. There was no... They're like, I, that key emoji was genius the first 40,000 times. Like, there's nothing this guy is doing that's that good, but I'm so happy for him. And it's like, I'm so happy he's had the success because what he did, and I think this happens a lot, is like... You just show up early, and you look at that. Like yeah. for me, like I have a lot of Twitter followers. I'm pretty good at Twitter, but I was mostly just early. Yeah.
1: Um, the the second part of that question, I wanted to ask you. <laughs> We're on the same was, question. Was, yeah. We, um, this this all is one long question. Question two will debut at 10 p.m. tonight. <laughs> Stick around. Um, I wanted to ask about. So it's been 17 years that you've been doing this. Yeah. And God, uh, it sounds like what other other than these facts that you've just dropped. Yeah. Uh, what, is, what have you learned from it?
4: Oh, gosh. What have I learned from writing on the internet? Yeah, uh, <laughs> It's big and it's broad. <laughs> there's... there's uh, Maybe uh, 11 o'clock will be the number next Number one, that I'm yeah. wrong. Uh, that I hear a lot. Um, I've learned that there are some, uh, you know, unimaginably cruel people on the internet. Um, and I have learned that, like, people are basically pretty nice and um, thoughtful. And they want to learn about things. And most of the well actually energy that people try to correct you about stuff is because they want to connect and they want you to know what they know and to show what they know and and say I care about this thing too so there's this real I mean it's like humans are so fragile you know where there's these like little baby bunnies that are so fragile and 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 like but like are pretending not to be all the time and like that's the thing that always comes through on the internet is I can put up you know, as I want to do, like write about mangoes or I can write about prints or like my recurrent obsessions and um, total strangers, even people who are like, I hate this guy. I hate his politics. I hate whatever. I'm like, oh, yeah, mangoes really are good. You know, like there's this sort of like, <laughs> like this thing that transcends where they're like at this human level, they find a connection. I think that's sort of what always gets me back in because, I mean, you know, like everybody, I think 10 times a year, I'm like, screw this. I'm quitting. Like I, the hell of all of you. I'm you know, deleting my f- entire phone or whatever. I you mean, know, just like you come back because the people were there and, and most of them are pretty good. Wonderful. Thank you.
2: Are there any blogs that you really love and follow?
4: Oh, gosh, that's good. What, what um, should
2: we be reading online?
4: Um, you know, it's funny. These days I really – there are Twitter accounts I really, really love. Um, and Because, I, I mean, I think there's that sense of like a lot of the energy of what I liked in blogs people are doing on Twitter and on Tumblr and um, on everywhere – um, although like this really old school, and he's a friend of mine, uh, Jason Kotke has a blog called kaki.org, and it's like the oldest of the old school. It's probably been running for a hundred years on the internet, um, and it's like not appreciably about anything specific, um, but he's just a really good editor, and he does a really good job of sort of curating things that are interesting to me, and um, and particularly because we're like good friends, and like our kids play together, and we know each other now. Um, I can go back and look at. Literally, in his case, twenty years of archives that he's been writing, and see how he's grown, and how his life, and also like having the backstory, of knowing how his life has changed and whatever. So that's a real like, and that's for me. It's a great blog. I mean, he's a great blogger, but also this sort of the human aspect of it is really powerful. Um, I think on the other, like total other extreme, um, there's a woman named uh, Andrea Lopez uh, whose Twitter is Blue Choo Choo. I think. It's, like, it sucks that I don't remember offhand, but I think it's Blue Choo Choo. And um, she is, like, this really fascinating combination of, like, a business analyst of the media industry and, like, an awesome pop culture writer. And, like, you never see sort of that mixed together. And, like, her tweets are usually links to, like, bigger things that she's made. Like, she makes these super nerdy spreadsheets about, like, how is this person making this much money as a makeup blogger on YouTube? And you're like, I wanna see, and like that. Um, And it's just stuff that nobody else is covering, and and she treats it all as sort of normal and with respect that I feel like a lot of times people are very dismissive of online creators, and she has like such thoughtfulness and respect about what they do. I just, I love her work.
0: And now a quick word from our sponsor. Whether you're an experienced full-time freelancer or just getting started, FreshBooks can help you get organized and get paid faster it really can. Speaking of getting paid, talking about money can be awkward. FreshBooks makes this a lot easier with customizable late payment reminders that go out automatically, meaning you don't have to feel like a bad guy constantly sending out emails. With FreshBooks you can also bill your time hourly or at a flat rate per project. When you're all done just a few clicks and you can create an invoice based on your log time and your hourly rate. Are you working on long projects or maybe have a client that's asking for work month after month? You can save time by setting up recurring invoices that automatically bill your client for you. And if you're getting ready to kick off a really big project, you can get paid up front with deposits, so you aren't left strapped for cash or worried about bills mid-project. Let FreshBooks take care of the number stuff so you can get paid doing what you love. And don't take our word for it. FreshBooks is offering a free 30-day trial for TGD listeners, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash TGD and enter TGD live in the how did you hear about us section. Thanks, FreshBooks, for sponsoring the Great Discontent Podcast. Now back to the show.
2: Well, uh, we're going to bring up our second guest now. I have a, an intro for her, and, and she's done quite a few things as well. Oh, so yeah. um, our second guest is a writer, editor, and public speaker who lives in Brooklyn by way of Indiana. She's currently writing a memoir, among other things, and co-editing an anthology with Roxanne Gay, who we love. Um, that's not in the bio. I'm just... Throwing that in there, she has written or guest edit, <laughs> edited for The Guardian, L. BuzzFeed, Slate, ID, Lenny Letter, Design Sponge, and various other web and print publications. She has spoken at South by Southwest, uh, Earlham College, Girls Right Now, and she was a featured opening writer on Lena Dunham's "Not That Kind of Girl" book tour. She was the recipient of a writing residency from Hedgebrook, and she teaches writing at the New School and Catapult. Please welcome Ashley C. Ford. What welcome.
1: What have you done? Oh Lord, I'm You've was done so You guys,
2: you guys have over. both done everything. Um, We've tried. <laughs> have done it. So we first spoke with you in November mm-hmm. when we interviewed you for thegreatdiscontent.com, mm-hmm. and you were so busy doing many things, <laughs> which you're still busy doing—teaching, writing. Yeah. Um, what have you been up to since November? What are you working on? Oh God. Um. Still teaching.
3: Still writing a ton of things. I'm currently also consulting with Condé Nast on creating some original. Web video content for one of their brands. Um, more speaking <laughs> at different colleges and things like that. Um, I think like I feel like that's it, but I I don't remember what I'm doing because it's all written down, <laughs> and I write it down to get it out of my head. So then, when people go, Ashley, what have you been up to? I'm like, I know something because all my all my time is gone, and I'm definitely getting paid. But I don't necessarily know what to tell
1: you that I'm doing. I think that is the dream right there.
2: I saw that you're speaking in in Indiana. Yes, which is exciting because you're going back. Yeah,
3: to your any roots. excuse I have to go back to Indiana, I'm excited to go. And I know people, you know, like. Mike Pence, the governor, makes our state look like the most ass backwards, just like full of hicks. Like, it's the reason why when I'm in New York and I tell people I'm from Indiana, they're like, oh, are there other black people there? And I have to be like, yes, <laughs> at least one. Um, but it's, they, I feel like the government there sometimes makes our state look so bad, and the people that I know in Indiana are not like that at all. I mean, they have the like regular baseline white people ignorance. It's not like extra <laughs> just because they're in the Midwest, <laughs> and everybody doesn't live on a farm. That's another thing. I have Well, I think it. the good news is
1: right now too. I think South Carolina has you guys totally beat. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> when
3: that law passes, they're out, winning I'm like, that Woo! race. <laughs> Like but let's get it repealed, but also woo. But don't don't people know the Jackson Five song "Going Back to Indiana"? No. 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 People oh, really? in general do not know oh, that song. Most people don't know I that the live Jackson in a bubble Five where came that's from Indiana. A, oh. They don't know Dave Letterman's from Indiana. They don't. They don't know Vivica Fox is from Indiana. I didn't know that. Like, yeah, it's insane. <laughs> Hoosiers are doing it. Mark Twain's from Indiana. I thought he was from Missouri. Oh no, you're right.
1: Okay. <laughs> but you spent some this, this... <laughs> Don't challenge me on my Samuel Clemens. Do not challenge me on Samuel Clemens. <laughs> I get it
3: mixed up because I spent like my grandma's you can't from take Missouri. Mark Twain? <laughs> not Mark Twain. No, wait. I get I get like the old white dudes with crazy hair mixed up. It was um Kurt Vonnegut. Was it Einstein? Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> no. He's from Indiana.
1: Well this this isn't in the cards or the script for tonight. You you spent some time in Missouri too, did you not?
3: Yeah, no, okay. yes, I did. I am um, when I was my mom had a little bit of like my mom had Oh my god, this is about to get dark. I'm sorry. My mom um had a stillborn baby and it was very traumatic for her and she basically had like a full on breakdown. I was too young to really understand what was going on. All I knew was that my brother stayed with my mom and my grandma whisked me away to her father's farm in Missouri. And while I was there, I had a goat and a German shepherd and my grandpa like gave me like dollars because he would throw hammers at wild pigs that showed up in the backyard. And if I went and collected the hammers, I would get a dollar for each hammer. Um, And I had this very idyllic existence (laughs) in Missouri where I lived on this farm with these two, like, really crotchety old people, like, my grandmother and her father. And me and my grandma, every Saturday, like, we got to alternate. We would go see a movie at the mall every Saturday. And we got to alternate. So she would pick one week and I would pick the next week. And so, like, I saw Aladdin while I was there. But then I also saw, like... Lorenzo's oil and Groundhog's Day and so stuff that as a little kid you're like what the hell is this <laughs> but I saw a mom she would take me into every movie I so saw a lot of movies
1: my- and throwing hammers at pigs
3: throwing hammers at pigs lots of movies little lizards sometimes that got into our apartment that I would catch um, it was it was insanely beautiful my grandma I was I started kindergarten there she used to wake me up every morning with um, waffles, with um, whipped cream, and strawberries. And she would, like, make it all. Like, she, because I was, like, you know.
1: you got to have energy to throw yeah. or is at pigs. She,
3: she was also trying to breakfast. fatten me up. She yeah. felt like I was too skinny. So she would make a lot of meals that were meant to fatten me up. And, well, I mean, <laughs> as you can see, her work today, I am a plump woman. And that is all thanks to Billy Coles.
1: Well, born and raised Missouri here, too, so we'll, we'll catch up after the yeah, show. We'll get, I, we'll go there. Because I some hammers at pigs, too. Did That's you? No, no. That was not true at
3: all. You weren't living. I was the <laughs> one protecting childhood. the pigs
1: from the hammers. Oh, my bad. Um, all right, so back to the cards.
3: Yeah, sorry. Um,
1: I'm going to have to read this one because it's a long one. Uh, when we inter- interviewed you for The Great Discontent, you said, when I finally gave up the ghost and became an English major, I felt like I was home. I was pragmatic and told myself I'd never be able to do anything like creative writing for a living, but I knew I'd always have the option of writing on the side. So that's what you said. Now you're working in New York as a writer. Um, How did you get to this point?
3: Oh, man, mostly dumb luck, and um, just being, to be perfectly honest, um, I hate being afraid of anything. And when I'm afraid of something, that actually makes me want to do it to, like, prove to myself I don't have to be scared. I've mostly learned to, you know, have some self-preservation and not do everything that scares me. Um, But this was one of those things. I was scared. My whole family, my whole family lives in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Everybody, my mom, all four of her sisters, my grandma until she passed away. We lived not just in Fort Wayne, Indiana, we all lived in the same neighborhood. I went to school with all my cousins. My mom's side, I have 16 first cousins, and most of us were in school together at the same time because all of our moms are really close in age and it's just, you know, it's very interesting, but I was totally terrified. To come and live in New York City when my mother has never been on an airplane, you know what I mean? Like, we didn't really, aside from my little like Missouri adventure and a couple of trips to like Tennessee, <laughs> we didn't go anywhere. And I was like, oh, I'm gonna go live in Brooklyn, and that to my family was kind of like saying I'm gonna go live on Mars, because they were like, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, kind of the same. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah uh, we'll, we'll add a sound effect in for that. Yeah, just add a sound effect. Um, so, so you came here, but was so just like I asked Anil, like was there an aha moment for you where you realized that yeah, I can pursue writing and make a living out of it?
3: Um, yeah, it was probably meeting Roxanne Gay, who is my friend and mentor, but is you know also like like not like the easiest person to get to like open up she's very pragmatic though in a certain way especially in speaking and she's also just like really shy Uh, so when meeting her I realized really quickly that like she's not a bullshitter and that if she tells you she thinks you can do something it's because she really believes it like she if you come up to her and you're like You know, and she's like, read your writing or whatever, and you're like, oh man, I really just want to do this forever or whatever, and maybe you're just like a shit writer. She'll be like, that's a dream. You know what I mean? Like, you'll be like, this is my dream. And she's like, that is a dream. You know what I mean? Like, she's not the kind of person who will encourage you without... Like, she if she doesn't have a reason to encourage you, if she really doesn't believe it, she just won't do it. She really won't. So, and she was like... At the time, for me, you know, even though, yes, there are black people in Indiana, she was the person in Indiana, or technically at the time, right next to Indiana, who was a black woman who was writing. Well, she was in Illinois. The state has its own name. Illinois,
4: <laughs> Illinois is, like, still a going nah, concern.
3: Yeah. It's there. <laughs> she, But she, you know, like was very encouraging and it felt like took special notice of me and that meant and means so much. Like to this day, she probably has too much influence on me, like through no force or anything of her own. But if I feel like I've done something that like she can't get behind, it's really hard for me. Even if I really care about it or want to do it or whatever, it's like I will, but it's still like, it's a hurdle because I just value her opinion so much that she's almost mythical to me in a lot of ways.
2: Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about Twitter. Mm. Uh, mm. Mm.
3: Tonight is sponsored by um, Twitter, it's actually not. <laughs> not, not at all.
2: No, <laughs> not, not at all. all. Um, I followed you on Twitter for a while now, Ashley, and I really appreciate the amount of empathy that you show toward others and how you consider other people's thoughts and feelings. And, um, I mean, I think we need more empathy online in general. And I'm curious to hear from both of you, uh, starting with Ashley, why is it so challenging for us to show empathy toward others online when it's something that, you know, we want to, to receive ourselves? And how can, how can we be better at it?
3: Well, there are a couple of things there. Like, first of all, I feel like empathy is a practice. Like, you don't necessarily go online and start being, (laughs) you know, empathetic. Like, it's something that you practice in your own life, and then it, like, transfers sometimes online. Um, And I was, you know, like a weirdly sensitive kid who like growing up, I just felt like I felt everybody else's pain. And I couldn't deal with seeing other kids get picked on or seeing like, you know, people not treated well, even in movies and TV shows, I would just like cringe and I would like get so mad. And it was it was just very visceral for me, you know, but as you get older, some of that goes away. And Like, then it had to become intentional. And it wasn't just enough to, like, lean on the fact that I'm a sensitive person. Like, I also had to be intentional about when somebody says something, not thinking about everything I know (laughs) and attaching that to what they said. Because it's like, oh, I don't know that they have the same information I have. I don't know that they have the same access to information that I have. And in a lot of cases, I don't even know if I'm right. (laughs) Like, I'm just saying things. So I think I started... Like, at least for me with the internet, I think part of the problem is that it's not just an internet problem, it's a human problem, which is that even though we know we can be wrong or that we make mistakes or we can be confused, for some reason it's really, really hard to understand that someone else can just be wrong and not a bad person or be confused and not a bad person or not have the same information we have. And I, you know... I think part of that for me comes from growing up with a father who's in prison you know and who's in prison for something really really terrible and knowing that I still love him and care about him and that he's always been really encouraging and loving to me and that that's the dad I know I don't know the criminal dad (laughs) you know but also that criminal dad and loving dad are the same person so I think I just apply that to everything. (laughs)
4: Well, that, that might be the whole answer. I mean, I, I think uh, I definitely was that sensitive kid, too. And I still, I mean, like, I can't watch violent movies. Like, I'm definitely, like, got my hands over my eyes. And um, and so that was part of it. I mean, I think I definitely felt um, with all of sort of social media or whatever, there was this um, tendency towards cruelty that uh, one was about the to sort of disconnect, right? It's like, oh, that's not really a person. It's this little avatar but also having seen how the tools were built and having built some of them myself, um, there were deliberate design choices that were made in building the tools that encourage um, thoughtless or unkind behavior. And I think that's something we haven't sort of put enough responsibility on, where, like, the people building the tools built them to sort of allow for um, a lot of the worst stuff that we see online. And part of it was they knew they wouldn't be targeted by it. You know, it's like if you build the network, you're like, I'm not worried about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be profiting from it. And, and the people who are targeted, um, you know, especially women, women of color who are like the worst, bearing the worst brunt of it, are not in these companies. So like they don't feel the pain. They don't see it. And, um, you know, that not to erase the ones who are, but by and large are, are excluded from those companies and, and certainly not uh, very often in management. And so that thing I think we sort of skip is like we talk about how we feel and how culturally, there is that disconnect around empathy towards people you disagree with or that you, um, you know, have a, uh, you take issue with for whatever reason. And that on top of the fact that the tools make it seem like that's not a real person and that's not somebody with feelings and I can't really see what they're there. And we all have to project this sort of bravado or this best version of ourselves or our sort of perfect selfies or all these sort of like things that we do. And it's like, that's not really who we are. And all those things take away from how we humanize each other. And I mean, I, I think a couple of years ago I did a, a talk that was about um, basically empathy for folks in the Tea Party, and um, it didn't go over very well in, Ma- in Manhattan <laughs> when I did the talk. Um, but it was it, for me, what I had come to understand was because of people coming at me online, I was like, well, let me like, let me find out what your issue is. And really what it boiled down to, this is several years ago, I mean, I think it's metastasized under like Trump and all these things now, but at that point, it was, um, I think what all of us who are children of immigrants, who are any people of color, have had our parents say to us at some point, you know, you'll have to work twice as hard, but you can be anything you want to be, right? Like this is, you know, this is the land of opportunity. You can do all these things, and and you just have to work twice as hard. And it's a, it's a bitter message, but this kind of optimistic message too, right? It's a really interesting balance. And I think, what a lot of these, these folks who were mostly like lower class or lower middle class white folks felt was somebody had just told them the same thing. It wasn't like Obama was the first black president. It was that like Bush was the last white male president. And they were like, that sucks. You know, like we thought we were going to be president all the time, forever. And so now we have to work twice as hard, too, just to get what everybody else has. I was like, yeah, it does suck. Like, doesn't that isn't that terrible to tell your kid that? <laughs> And they're like, yeah, that would suck. I was like, that's all we've been doing, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so I had this sort of, like, I wouldn't have had that without talking to people online who were sort of talking to me about what their fears were and what, like, because they would come at me like, you know, you're an awful New York media el- liberal elite, whatever. And I was like, yes, like, that's true. Like, I have no quibble with that description. Uh, and then they'd be like, and you know, this is why you're terrible. I'd be like, I don't think that makes me terrible. Like, what's your issue with me? And they say this thing about I don't, ha- I don't feel like I have an opportunity, and it's because they had to do what every single, like I said, like every single, you know, minority in America has had to do from day one. And then I was like, yeah, that would be an incredibly painful thing to reckon with. Mm-hmm. And so then after that, and I think that was one of the things, like those gifts of having, like I'm very lucky to have a large network online. Without that sort of being able to cast a wide net and talk to people, I wouldn't have had that. But it was a really good lesson for me about, like, challenging my own assumptions where I had been, even though I grew up amongst these folks, um, I had been, I think, in in New York City, frankly, long enough to have gotten really condescending and really um, arrogant about how I interacted with them. And until I actually talked to them as people, I didn't see it.
2: So there's always room to grow in our empathy. Mm -hmm. Mm Um, which it's is hard work. Yeah. Um, so d- continuing our talk about Twitter, you are both very active on there, have um, you know, communities that you engage with. Um, you talk about a variety of issues from politics to pop culture. Um, was that a conscious decision for either of you to d- be so active and engaged on Twitter? or?
3: No. <laughs> Not initially. Initially, uh, the Twitter... That I have now was supposed to be, like, my professional account. Mm. And then I had, like, a personal account that was, oh, my God, so wild. And I ended up... Does it still exist? No, I killed that account. Oh, can I friend request that one? You may not. It's gone forever. It was not necessarily... a great representation of the person that I am trying to be now. Okay. All right. It was it was a lot, and it was like it was intense and bad. And I was just like, you know what? Like I I think it was after a while. I was looking at the tweets, and I was looking at things that I was tweeting, and I was like, this doesn't really reflect me anymore. And I know like that it reflects part of me, but not who I am now. And so I deleted that account and started like using my professional account as my primary account and not really caring if what I talked about was, like, super professional. And I I feel like um, initially – well, actually, initially I joined Twitter because I had um, a brain surgery, and it came with a little bit of short-term memory loss. And I used Twitter as, like, a time stamp – um, so I would tweet things that were happening because I knew at the end of the day or the next day, I could go back and look at my Twitter timeline and see what I had actually done or said. Yeah, I had um, that without
4: the brain surgery. But, the <laughs> same yeah.
3: but yeah, so I, I <laughs> but that's what I used it for initially. Um, and then it became, you know, I was also doing stand up comedy when I was in college and I started using it as a place to sort of like test jokes Um, that was the old account. And then, (laughs) and then in this new one, I realized that like, I really wanted to talk about books. When I was like using that other account to like tell jokes and stuff like that, I started talking about books and people were like, what the, what the, what is this? This isn't the smash fizzle we knew before or something. And I was like, uh, and so I went to the other account and just started talking about books as much as I wanted to. And then eventually felt more comfortable talking about all the things that I care about, like books and relationships and anxiety and depression and Kenny Loggins and those are the things I wanted to talk about and I put it out there and I was shocked that people were responding and or cared. Or when I found other huge Kenny Loggins fans, that was like a great day for me.
1: We, we might have a couple here tonight. I think I heard some applause. Did anybody? So.
3: Okay, well just getting excited. Thank you kindly.
1: What, what do y'all you call yourselves? Are you
4: logophiles? Are you.? We
3: are not. Does he log-a-file. have like a fan? Is it
4: like. Is it Kenny Navy? No. Like what's his.
3: I think somebody, like. like I forget what somebody called him one time. Like they were like, those of us who write about him are called like the bloggins or something like that. <laughs> and it's not, then. Yeah, it's not okay. There Kenny, was something like Kenny else. Bloggins. That's, like Kenny Bloggins. That's... <laughs> And then there were, like, other things. I don't call myself anything except a Kenny Loggins super fan, and I frequently refer to him as, like, the Sultan of Soundtracks and, like, you know, the Yahweh of Yacht Rock. Like, I just call him a lot of things. Just, there's,
4: there's a lot in there. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah.
3: but it's all true. Like, all if right. like I'm just, this is, these are just facts, I like, have never. no reason to lie to you. He's I'm gonna, an I'm going to chat Larry. with
1: Anil, and we're going to back Machine your old Twitter account, and we're going to see. If you can't can do, do that, can, you? can I, you? I know people. See, the
4: internet never forgets. This is part forgets. of the problem. This no. is
1: the terms of service that you nah, like yeah. signed at the end of this it. This is. Those nah. tweets still exist this in the database. This is misogyny. You can't do <laughs> this to me. In his case, it's racism. But both yeah. of those things
2: are. We're covering all the spectrums yeah. tonight. All the spectrums. Anil. <laughs>
3: I feel so bad
4: because white folks get so upset. I don't mean that. You're not. You're you're only participating in systems of racism. Like you're not a racist. You
3: are only only implicit.
4: I absolve you. You are only (laughs) implicit.
3: This uh, this will be my final show tonight.
2: (laughs) I was gonna ask. um, Did you? Was it a conscious decision on your part to be so active and involved on Twitter, or were you just you were in early and you Uh, just continued? Yeah.
4: I, I tried to stay away. The, I actually, I got, I got invited to try out Twitter literally the first day it was open to the public because I, I was in San Francisco at the time and they were friends and I was like, yeah, I'll try it. And um, one of the guys who's a co-founder who's mostly been erased from the story was this guy named Noah Glass and he was like sort of a hippie-ish dude. And I signed up and I tried it and like the first couple tweets I saw were from him because he was like trying out the service they just built. And I was like, oh, this guy, this guy, I can't stand this hippie guy. And I just like, deleted the account and I didn't go back for months because I was like, that guy's annoying. But it, like, I didn't really think of like, I know it sounds ridiculous to be, like, one of the eight people on Twitter is annoying, therefore you delete all of Twitter. But um, at the time, that seemed like a reasonable thing. Like, why am I going to
1: use his app? That guy's, you know. Right. And, and that was even before the Twitter that we know it. That's where everything was delivered via SMS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. basically, yeah. it was just blast SMSing yeah, yeah, exactly. your friends. You were getting
4: you <laughs> a ton of text messages, mostly from people you didn't want to hear from. Right.
1: And that was back before text messages were free, yeah, too. Yeah, so. It was the best of all possible <laughs> yeah. worlds. It was really good. You, like, prune your Twitter followers because you're going to go over your minute plan. Yeah exactly and then like four months later I signed up
4: again and I was like oh there's some interesting people here and it was kind of cool um and then I sort of it really really fit a thing I had already been doing um back in like I don't know 2002 or something I started I had done what then we called link blogs but it was like I would just like find little stories that I liked and well I was working in a newspaper I was working at the voice and I was not in editorial so I wasn't allowed to write headlines and you're not allowed to do anything like you're you're the geek you run the computers you shut up <laughs> And I just was like, I got better headlines than these folks. Like, I just know I do. (laughs) And so I just would back then just write a blog and it's like, here's a link. And I just write, like, here's a funny headline. And then when Twitter came along, I was like, oh, this is what I was doing. Like, I was posting links and writing, like, funny things about them. And, like, that's what this is for. And so it was sort of for me a return to, like, I would always written really short and sort of pithy and, like, making fun of current events and talking about pop culture, all the stuff that I think we love on Twitter. And I was like, oh, it just, like the form I was waiting for had arrived. I'd been trying to do it over here, typing this other box, and now I'm going to do it in here. Um, and that was really like, just right away, I, I thought like, oh, that's that's what I'm sort of meant to do. And then in 2009 or so, I got added to the suggested user list, which was this like, you sign up for Twitter. And like back then, there was like Ashton Kutcher trying to fight CNN to see who would have more Twitter followers or something. And then, like, if you were like, I'm into tech, it would be like, here's Microsoft, and here's whatever, here's some random Indian dude in New York, and he, and people like just were like, I don't know, maybe this is how it works. So it was like, when you buy like a, a Windows laptop and it has like a bunch of crap pre-installed on it, like I was that crap. And then and so like I got all these followers, and one day I was at a coffee shop with a friend, and like I got out and I had 1,100 new emails in my inbox. After like a thirty minute coffee, I'm like some some systems broken, something went wrong, but it was people signing up for Twitter, and I was getting the notification that they'd followed me, um, and it was like, and I was like, well, this should be interesting, and uh, and it kind of was, and and then um, you know since then, like once you have a certain like a network of a certain size, it just feeds itself because I can like talk about stuff and get really like I get really good answers like if I'm like you know what's whatever I'm in omaha what's the place i should eat like somebody knows the answer and i'm like that's a that's like having a superpower it's kind of cool
0: okay if you've ever heard a podcast before you've likely heard of mailchimp but it really is true mailchimp is the easiest way to send email newsletters if you're looking to connect with an audience or grow your creative business you've got to give mailchimp a try it's easy to set up it's easy to use there are flexible design options that make it so simple to create a great looking campaign And let's say you're putting on an event in Chicago and you only want to email people that are from Chicago. MailChimp's powerful automation and segmentation tools make this easy with just a few clicks. Plus, with MailChimp's mobile app, you can manage lists, add new subscribers, send campaigns, and view reports all while on the go. Getting started with MailChimp could not be easier. No expiring trials, no contracts, no credit card required. Just sign up and start emailing now. Go to MailChimp.com to create your free account today. Thank you, Mailchimp, for supporting the Great Discontent podcast. Now back to the show.
1: In 2014, you did a, a pop tech talk, and just side note, really quick, go home, Google or Bing if that's your thing. Um, Bing. Anil Bing, <laughs> right? You know, gotta give gotta give Microsoft something. Uh, Anil Dash, pop tech 20. You don't need to put the year in; it's going to come up at the top. Um, it's a really great. It's short. It's like 15, 20 minutes long. Um, he gets into some really great topics of how technology is changing the world, but really, in fact, we're, we're not changing the world. So watch it. It's worth it. We don't have enough time tonight to dive into it, but uh, please do. But in this, um, you made a note that uh, most of us, which this was just shocking for me to learn, will spend three years of our lives with our thumbs on the glass of our phones. Mm-hmm. Um, That's an average. It's probably higher for people like... Us. Yeah, which that's even more depressing. Um, and this this is a big topic for me because I've been trying to make a lot of changes in, in less apps, less time on phones, um, less social networks, things like that. Um, so in that vein, how do you think we can make our time online? If we truly are spending three, four, five years of our lives with our thumb on this stupid thing right here, how can we make that time more meaningful? <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I,
4: I think... It's just mindfulness, right? I, mean, I think it's like you know, are the things I say, what's been very clarifying for me, I have a five year old son and he's a pretty good reader now. and so he can read my notifications on you know, on my phone and will, like because he'll play with the iPad or something and like the little bar pops up. Um, and I started thinking about that before he was born that I had at that point, you know, a dozen years of like stuff I'd written online that he was gonna read someday. And now it's very keenly, aware. Like, like he's basically editing me now, like I'm on Medium and he's like looking over my shoulder like, no. Um, and uh, and like, no, daddy, don't blog. But that, that sort of um, clarity about knowing this is something that will probably outlast me and be the record, that is, this is the work, this is what I will be known for, um, was really clarifying. And so that, for me, trans- it, it transformed everything I do online to thinking about like, I want this to be substantive and meaningful and fun and mm-hmm. to accurately reflect me and my values and where I am right now and um, and that it really will persist. It'll be online forever and that um, if I, whatever, like rage out one day and act like a jerk on Twitter, like that's never going away. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it really easy to be like, maybe I'll just put the phone down for a minute and like, <laughs>
1: Walk away. In, in that vein, are there questions that we can ask ourselves to, to kind of learn to be more mindful of, of, uh, of this? Uh, yeah. She's great I'm at Twitter. So This is for know. both of yeah. you. <laughs> Dive in.
3: Um, one of the things that I always um, ask myself when it, it's usually more so when it comes to responding to people and whether or not I respond, and I always ask myself, first of all, is this person an egg? if
1: that's the case don't respond well how, how do you okay i'm gonna wait i'm gonna wait
3: no it's just because their avi will be an egg like it's still just like the twitter egg yeah, they never if they're an the egg default. don't respond um if they and some people I thought say, there was a
1: metaphor in there for life no. or something <laughs> that i was totally missing
3: i also have a rule that like if they're like and this is like if somebody's being mean or something like that if they have less than a, a thousand followers don't respond only because, like, not because having less than a thousand followers means something about who you are, but it absolutely means something about like your reach. Like, if somebody with thirty thousand followers is like saying like shit to me, I'm gonna respond. Otherwise, I feel like it's punching down. Um, and as far as like what to post and what not to post, the only thing that really like rule I have is: Would this annoy me? Like, if this would annoy me then don't do it. Like if somebody else was doing this to it, I would be like, ugh, God, please stop. Then I don't do it. But if it's something that I'm like, if I saw this, I would be okay with it, then I'm okay, then I'm just gonna do it. But I think probably the thing that you have to think of most is like when I'm about to write something or when I'm about to put something on social media, does this accurately reflect how I feel? Mm. Who does this affect? Assume, like when I write this down, who does it affect? Like, cause it usually affects somebody more than you to be perfectly honest or has like the ability to. And I just also think about like, you know, is this in, like, not always, because I know like my kidney log is be like, nobody actually like <laughs> is really hungry for that. But I do think things like, you know, is this in some way useful, even if it's just to me? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it's just useful to me to get things out and to write them down. Um, and that's okay if it's just useful to me. But if I'm tweeting something that's not useful to me or not... It's being more else, mindful. Yeah. yeah okay. That's
4: interesting you are talking about like what somebody wants. Because I was like, I don't think anybody wants as much as I tweet about Prince... Now. But I'm like that's okay like cuz like I'm like if you don't know by now this is what's coming yep like you should just unfollow like that's that's cuz this like it's yeah. not going it's not going to decrease
3: I have this thing about unfollowing where I frequently encourage people to unfollow me not yeah. just like not on some like mean stuff but but literally because like it's just not that big a deal Yeah like, I'm not hurt by it I'm not hurt by it even when people I know are like I love you your twitter is a little much I'm like please don't like, cause you know what's going to happen is that when you see me in person, you're going to be thinking about how much you hate my Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to be a problem. I would much rather you just unfollow me or like not friend me on social media because like we're real life friends. Like who cares? Yeah. Like I see you, you all like the time. If you like you don't
0: like
4: Twitter
3: me, that's all right. That is totally okay. That's totally okay. Now if Kenny followed me and then unfollowed me, that'd be really hard. <laughs> that's like the only one that would really hurt me. Does he follow you? No, Jesus! <laughs> don't even suggest Do such you a want, thing. Do you want that to happen?
1: Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're a gonna. Dream? No. Is that, no, should we all be dream? I think if everyone them, here was situated not. Kenny Loggins and no, you later tonight, that we is, just might be able. To I don't make have this Not what I
3: want. Not at all what I want. Listen, Why you want the I get gaze very. Of I get very nervous. I get very, very, very nervous. <laughs> Like, I've bought tickets twice to see Kenny Loggins shows and then not shown up because I got too nervous.
2: What?
3: I can't do it. This is an intense feeling. I don't expect anyone to understand or feel like it's rational. I just need you to hear and accept me. That's all I need. That's it. It's too much. I
4: think Prince would tell you to go to the show.
3: Okay, well, that's fantastic. And he supports you. Prince is such a like beautiful and smart spirit, and I adore him, but he doesn't have to live in this body.
4: Uh, go to the Loggins show. And I would
3: just shake the whole time. Like, I think I would just shake the whole time and, like, maybe pass out. What if it you wouldn't... got bad
4: seats, though? Like, you could barely see
3: him. It like, doesn't. It's, like, you're Like, there's from... no bad seat at a Kenny Loggins show. Like, nobody's. <laughs> No, like uh, there's no uh, like you show you. up to kenny Loggins show and are you, somebody's like are
2: you uh, having uh, anxiety right now talking yes, about like, it like i don't yeah. know if you
3: can read can, my body language but body it's like i can't
2: are you my so, shoulders are, you, are all tight
4: are you presently in the danger
3: zone <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> is that i don't know how that works i don't
3: uh, no no i'm all right all right <laughs> <laughs> well done well oh done God. God. Um, sorry
2: I think we should end the show. Where do we go yeah, from I there? Mean, really,
1: yeah, Where do we go from um, there?
2: No, we have, we have a couple more questions. Um, so you guys are both really outspoken about diversity in tech and publishing. Um, and I'm interested to hear, like, what do you think the main challenges are as far as being more inclusive in tech and publishing? And what can people with privilege and power do to help promote inclusivity?
3: The one thing they don't want to do most of all, which is relinquish power. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. Like it's systemic and it's it's power levels, and people like to be blind to their own power because then they don't have to give any of it up. Yeah. (laughs) Like you don't have to do it. So I mean, I think like that's to me anyway, that's the biggest hindrance to anything changing. You know, there are a lot of people, or like they just like pick a lane, right? Like there, I just had a conversation with someone who You know, uh, we were talking about someone else, and I found out that, like, this person who is always talking about, like, you know, making sure there are more women and stuff in publishing and making sure, you know, women, 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 that when faced with, you know, someone saying, okay, what about, like, racial diversity says, you know, I'm only one person. And I can't, like, I can't be thinking about that when I'm thinking about this other thing. And I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> I think it's just, you know, it's it's deeply, deeply ingrained. And we, you know, so many people, like I have my own privileges and definitely there are times when I have thought for one reason or another that like I didn't have anything to give or I couldn't do anything. And that absolutely wasn't the case. It was just deeply ingrained in me that like, oh, no, like I work really hard and I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I you take it as a character attack. So many people, when they like hear things about not, you know, how they haven't been inclusive or how they haven't made diversity a priority, instead of thinking it as, as like your boss coming to you and saying something like, you know, hey, you've been doing really great, but you haven't been doing this one thing and we need you to do that. It's like you would think, oh, I need to work on that thing. But instead what people hear <laughs> is you're a bad employee and uh, you're on the line and it's like that's not what was said and i think people get really upset when like issues of diversity or inclusiveness come up because what they hear is i'm a racist i'm a bigot i'm sexist i'm stuff like that and it's like no you are not a racist but you have definitely been complicit in some like racist situations and that's different than embodying the thing
4: yeah it's it's really hard to get people to reckon with like well, to do the thing you say you want to do, because everybody says the right thing now. Yeah. It's like to do you know, the thing you say you want to do means these are the changes you're going to have to make, and I, I see that in tech. Um, I mean, I've worked in tech and media, and you see this in both. Um, where in tech, in particular, they will talk about it's the pipeline. It's the pipeline, right? So we don't. Well, we don't have enough, you know, women that are engineers right now. We don't have enough women of color engineers. And one of the reasons that it took me a long time to get. One of the reasons that they were saying pipeline was best case scenario, if everything works exactly as they want, they're like, we're going to teach girls to code. So you take a first grader, she's seven years old, and you teach her to code, and everything goes exactly right. She aces her classes, she loves technology, is inspired by it, goes to school, does this stuff. Then in 15 years, she will enter the workforce at the bottom rung of an organization that has no women in leadership anywhere in it that's their, that's the winning case right like that's the like that's what we're aiming for and pouring millions of dollars into doing and i'm like so in like 2031 we're going to have a lot of women that hate their workplace like that's uh, that's not that doesn't sound like a success case to me and and you know you sort of present it that way and i'm like you know everything in tech they're like it's about metrics it's about numbers it's about you know we're going to quantify everything okay and you say you know like whatever, Twitter used to have the fail whale where it would fall over. I don't know if you all used it back then, but it would be like, you know, like you go to Twitter sometimes, it'd just be down. I think Snapchat has that now sometimes where it's just down. And then they're like, no, we're going to measure it. We're going to say this is how many hours that we, you know, are down in a year and we're going to reduce that to zero. And they say, okay, great. So why don't we do that with your hiring? It's like, well, here's what your state looks like in California. Here's the population. And um, and particularly in the case of tech, like one of the things we don't talk about is they Massively underrepresented in black and Latino workers um, actually white workers and and tech companies in California are pretty proportional population and the entire gap in between is made up of Asian workers mostly Asian men and so like we're displacing like it's us you know what I mean and like you haven't heard any like Indian American dudes talking about like we're overrepresented in tech and we're squeezing people out. Um, and I'm like, that's a big problem. And then part of it is people feel tenuous, like they feel like they're not going to be promoted or whatever. But like the CEO of Google, the CEO of Microsoft, CEO of Adobe, they're all Indian dudes. And so you go to them and say, as you know, there are systemic issues in this country with who gets included. And here's what you're going to have to do to change things. Why don't you measure your progress? Just like you measure whether your app is working. And the look on their faces is like, it's combination of terror and anger you know where they're like and i mean i'm lucky enough i get to be in the room to have that conversation but they're like you know how could you bring this up and and the best case scenario is oh i'm only one person i'm going to do this thing we're focusing look we're paying for the pipeline and we're teaching kids to code and we're doing all this stuff but most of the time it's just straight stonewalling and i think for me that came to be this understanding of like yeah it when they said we care about diversity and inclusion uh well they were lying and that really, I mean, that was sort of maybe for me three, four years ago, which is really odd. I mean, I've been working on this for 15 years, and so it's a shame on me for not seeing it earlier. But you want to believe people when they say, we care about this thing. And to realize that it was a tactic and not a belief uh, was uh, very disheartening.
3: I think as people of color, though, like we sometimes are just looking for, we're so hungry for anything. Mm, yeah. You know, like you're so hungry, like... Like, as soon as someone acknowledges that it's a problem, it feels a little bit like a victory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's we like, exist. oh, oh, oh. They said yeah. diversity. Like, just yeah. saying the word. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This could mean something. Yeah, I mean, Aziz got a show. Yeah. Aziz <laughs> got a show.
4: Yes. Yeah.
3: You know, like, for us, it's I'm like, glad it's
4: good, but even if it hadn't been, I would have told everybody to watch it. Right? Yeah.
3: I mean, I mean, for black women, it's like, you know, Shondaland. It's mm. like, What? She's got a land? Mm-hmm. Like, it makes us, <laughs> like, we have nothing. Dolly like, only got a wood.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah.
3: yeah, it's like, we have nothing. She has a land? Yes. Like, you just feel so excited about it. Um, and it's weird to be like, you know, like, you want the lands and you want, like, you know, Harpo and Oprah yeah. and stuff like that. Like, you want all that. But it's also like, what if there was an executive editor of color at this one magazine. Wouldn't that be great? It's weird to hope for things that people feel like are just like very normal jobs. For us to just be like, oh, it's a big deal if -hmm. they have an editor of color at this Mm -hmm. magazine. Or if they have, You know, like, or if there's a TV show, like some small little, like, web series or something like that, and it's like, oh, but the protagonist is a black woman. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, then everybody's watching it because that never happens, Mm -hmm. you know? Especially if it's, like, got funding or something. It's like, what? (laughs) They gave black people money? (laughs) Like, we get so... It's still exciting. It's still exciting, and I think sometimes... You know, I wrote this thing for Elle about um, Viola Davis getting the Oscar and how like I was both joyful and like just also insanely like what the fuck ever. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, because in my mind I'm like, you know who already earned this Oscar? Angela Bassett in 1993 with What's Love Got To Do With It. You know what I mean? Like, you know who already earned this Oscar? Like so many black women Mm -hmm. through history and I'm so happy for her and I'm so glad she got it. But even she knew. Mm-hmm. you know like you have to like I sometimes think about her joy in that moment and how it must have been tempered by the knowledge that oh this is also a finally mm-hmm. like this isn't just joyful this is also a you know it's woefully overdue yeah yeah
1: thank you for that and uh we're, we're running out of time but there's a couple more things we want to get through and one I want to touch on is is legacy. Um you've both uh, publicly talked about the legacies of people that you've admired and have influenced you. Anil, you've written about Prince, stating, and I quote, he's obviously the artist that had the most impact on my life and was in many ways the lens through which I processed the rest of pop culture and artistic expression. Ashley, you've frequently spoken about your grandmother's influence on you. She was the one who first taught you to read using the Bible and celebrity tabloids. Mm -hmm. Um, so, Anil, first question for you, and we'll sure. have to move these along. But how did Prince's artistry influence you most? Um,
4: you know, I think for me, my and everybody's, you know, whatever, everybody has their favorite Prince song or whatever. For me, my experience of him was um, he was kind of a geek, right? Like he's off in like Paisley Park is in the middle of a cornfield in Minnesota, um, and it looks like an office park where like an insurance company would be. You know what I mean? Like it's not like it's He painted it in the 90s, but, like, for the most part, it looked like this, like, stark white walls, business park kind of thing. And you think about a middle-aged Midwestern guy clocking into the factory in the cornfield in the Midwest, and his job is to, like, create funk, you know? And and he's like, it's time to make the funk, and he goes in. uh, and, 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 you know, and so many of the songs, like... When Dove's Cry, or Sign of the Times, or whatever, where, like, he went in, in a day, and he wrote it, and he played every instrument, and he sang every vocal, and he edited the whole thing, he mixed the whole thing, he puts it into his vault, or sends it to radio, or whatever he wants to do, and then he does the same thing the next day, every day in, day in, day out. And it was just, like, points on the board, like, I'm going to do this every day. And I thought, like, the work ethic of that, and the nerdiness, I mean, to be able to, like master every instrument and then, like, and the recording console and, like, to be able to, like, he one of the last things he did, he's like, oh, I did a live show in Atlanta last week, but I'm going to edit it and put it up on Tidal so fans can hear the one song, which he's just doing himself. Yeah. That is some nerdy shit, you know? <laughs> and so, like, to me, that idea, of, like, you could just geek out so obsessively and control an entire world where you were just a factory-making culture, Um I, I just found a very moving and especially in the context of how, you know, black artists have had to fight the music industry for a century and more. Um, revolutionary, I mean, no pun intended, but, like, that was this sort of really interesting... <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
4: Leave me alone, y'all. And and, and um and I just felt like that was something, um, if anything, undersung, was, like, this sort of extraordinary... Uh, work ethic, and dedication, and focus, and a vision for, like, if you can just control all these different parts, then you can do the whole thing yourself, and be in that rarest of things, which is, like, a complete creator.
1: Okay. Uh, Ashley, we know that your grandmother had a a big influence in your life, Um, so one profound lesson that you learned from her. (laughs) I know, it's just got to be one,
3: Um, or two, maybe. Oh, my gosh, this is so hard. Um... If you guys know, my grandma passed away um, about a year and a half ago, and she was my second parent. She was the person who essentially raised me um, because my mom was all alone, and she sort of, in a lot of ways, like, handed me over to my grandma for raising. So, you know, it's like I lost my parent. Um, But probably, probably the thing she taught me that um, still holds true today is um, how to recognize a good man. (laughs) Um, She, my grandma was picky as, like she was so she was so picky and you know men were like and my grandma was beautiful and men were always trying to talk to her like older men and stuff at church you know like brother henderson or elder robinson or somebody else always trying to talk to her and she and we would tease her and we'd be like grandma elder robinson was talking to you a lot after church or so she would be like oh that he ain't about nothing here you know what i mean he always over here talking i'm trying to talk to him you know what i mean like she she just was not about it and like growing up there were so many things you know that i saw my mother putting up with from romantic relationships watch my aunts put up with from romantic relationships because i grew up in a very 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 like female run world my grandma was single but she was like you know she had gotten divorced a little bit before a little bit after i was born um but she had five daughters, and obviously they were close because they all live in the same neighborhood. Um, So everybody's in everybody's business all the time, so it's like you just know everything. And my grandma, when something crazy was going on with another one of their boyfriends or husbands or whatever, my grandma would always pull me aside and go, you don't have to deal with that. That's not normal. That's not something you ever have to, you never have to let somebody talk to you like that. Somebody who says something like that to you doesn't love you. They don't care about you. They care about getting something from you. And so, you know, whereas I feel like a lot of girls my age have like, had, and I've had bad boyfriends, like don't get me wrong, like, but you could never come at me left and still end up with me. Like if I ended up with a bad boyfriend in general, it was because that somewhere down the line he went and then I went, oh, <laughs> and I know what that is. And then I was out, you know what I mean? But my grandma made it very clear that a lot of the things like growing up that, you know, people would just excuse as like men just being men or like a masculine thing. She was like, it doesn't matter. Like, that's not love. And you deserve love. And that's why now I'm with this, like, amazing person who people are always like, he's a unicorn. And I'm like, he's not a unicorn. (laughs) Like, he's a man. He's just a man, you know. He's a superhero. He's not a superhero. He's just a man. And there are other men like him in the world. There absolutely are. It's just that... Like, in general, you know, men or women, like, whoever, like, is dating men, like, have gotten used to the idea that, oh, if you wanna be with somebody, there's just some, you know, slight levels of abuse you might have to put up with, and no the fuck you don't. And I'm really glad I know that. (laughs) That's great.
2: All right, I have one more question for you guys. Um, Earlier this year on Twitter, you said that ambition was your word for 2016. So how do you hope to manifest that word in your life this year? And then the second part of this question is, Anil, if you had to choose a word for this year, what word would it be?
3: Ambition has definitely, um, I've allowed myself to do things that I didn't necessarily think I was qualified for. Um, and then showed up and found out that I was more than qualified. And I think that that's part of it for women, is that we tend to be very stringent on ourselves and say, like, you know, it's the job application thing. Like, you get a job application that says you need all these things, and we go, if we don't hit every point on that job description, then we shouldn't even apply, because we don't fit the description. Whereas men go, I got, like, three of those things. I'm going to put my name in. You know what I mean? And I... And I wanted to stop being the person who held themselves back. So if I see something I want, then I just make it clear that that's what I want. And it's not like I associated ambition for a long time with cutthroat. And I thought being ambitious meant you had to be able to just do whatever on some, you know, the devil wears Prada, Miranda Priestly type shit. And that wasn't me. And that wasn't ever going to be me. It wasn't, I couldn't imagine stepping up but with my foot on someone else's neck. I can't do it. That's just not who I am. Um, but I can ask for what I'm worth, and I can negotiate, and I can you know, allow the universe or whatever to dream a bigger dream for me than I'm able to dream for myself. So even though maybe my dream goes here, if somebody comes to me and says, I want to offer you an opportunity that goes here, I don't have to go, oh, well, my dream was here, so I'm just going (laughs) to, it's OK, I'm just going to go up here. It's like, no, I'm going to take that leap and I'm going to allow myself to surprise myself and really see what I'm capable of. Like so much, like life is a fucking experiment. So much of this is an experiment. And me holding myself back in the hopes that I guess, I don't know what, that I don't embarrass myself, that I don't disappoint myself, it's not worth it and it's not me living a full life. So ambition is really about me allowing myself to live a full life, which essentially means allowing myself to live beyond what I thought was possible for me last year. That was
2: perfect. That it was beautiful. That was awesome. Sorry. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> Sorry. I,
3: I, yeah,
4: I don't know how to follow that. I, I think um, one of the things, you know, my personality is I always try to sort of find middle ground, and I really like to find consensus, and I, um, I like you know, I have this sort of idealistic view that we can agree on things and come together. And um, and I feel that way still, but one of the things I realized that was coming from that is um, on issues that I really cared about where I thought I should put my foot down, um, you know, I was trying to compromise. And there are some things that there is no halfway on. And, um, and so I think what this year has been about for me has been a lot of reflection and a lot of sort of Um, like I turned 40, and all this stuff happened we are just sort of like grown-up moments where I'm realizing, um, I think uncompromising is the thing I'm aiming for and and aspiring to, I think in very much the vein you were describing, where uh, I sort of vacillate between, well, some progress is better than none, um, which is an easy thing to sort of fall back on, versus, well, let's go for what we actually want. Uh, And so I think that's been... um, a really, really hard evolution for me because it it involves a lot. It's actually oftentimes leads to confrontation. It leads to antagonism. It leads to sort of, you know, sometimes you light the way by burning the bridges. Um, And I think that's been a real um, reluctance for me for a long time. And now I'm sort of like, well, maybe I'm done with that. And I know
1: who I am now and what I want. Great.
3: uncompromising
1: Anil. Um, uncompromising. I like that one. Tina, since it's your birthday, do you have a word for the year? I just got to ask.
2: Uh, rest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've been yes. so busy, and I need I need to just take care of myself this year and do what I need to do, do to uh, get some rest when I need it.
3: That's important. Yeah. I'm with you,
2: girl. Yeah. Get it. <laughs> and happy um,
1: birthday. Nap time.
2: And uh, so those are all the questions we have. Thank you, Ashley and Anil, for coming here and spending the night with us and sharing. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you Tina and yeah. happy, birth- happy,
3: happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday dear Tina. Happy birthday to you.
2: Thank you. <laughs>
0: This episode was produced by The Great Discontent, Wayward Wild, and me, Benjamin Welch. I also did the ad music. The Great Discontent features conversations with today's artists, makers, and risk-takers. You can learn more at thegreatdiscontent.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating in iTunes. It really does help spread the word. Thanks so much for listening.